Good morning. Good to all be back here to get together today with no snow. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 19 as we get started, and then I'll pray. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Let's pray. Lord, let, Lord come and teach us self-discipline, self-government this morning. Lord, as we see, Lord, as we see fail, failures in judgments made in church and state, Lord, let us, uh, let us spur us on to greater godliness, a greater desire to govern ourselves, that we would not have to be governed by men. Lord, let us be governed by you alone, and is in uh, the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, very cheerful topic this morning. We're going to be talking about, past, uh, we're going to be talking about pastor, uh, we're bringing, uh, bringing this lesson back to the United States. And we're in the early, we're going to be in the mid we're going to be in the late 1600s talking about Pastor Samuel Paris. Samuel Paris. We don't know a whole lot about Samuel Paris's early life. Uh, we know he was born in London sometime in 1653 to Thomas Paris. Uh, we don't know who his mother was. He was he was a member of a nonconformist family in England. Nonconformist meaning not a member of the Church of England, a a a Protestant a Protestant protesting another Protestant denomination, ultimately. Um, he, his family was modestly successful, um, were modestly successful merchants, and they owned a sugar plantation in Barbados, like many, uh, like, like many prosperous families at the time. He, in the early 1660s, at a very young age, he emigrated to Boston, Massachusetts, to attend Harvard. And then upon his father's death in 1673, he moved, he, he moved to Barbados to take up his inheritance to oversee the large sugar plantation and the hundreds of slaves that his family had operating in it. In 1680, a hurricane destroyed much of the plantation, and he returned to Boston, bringing with him his, uh, one of his slaves named Tichuba, who we'll return to in a little bit. And, he, and in Boston, he married his first wife, Elizabeth. Uh, Samuel and Elizabeth Paris had three children, who will figure very prominently in this story here in a few minutes. Um, and his plantation continued to support his work as a merchant, but he was not satisfied with the modest, uh, with, it continued to be a very modest endeavor, and he was not content. So like many uh, men in business before, when he wasn't making enough money, he decided to head into the ministry. Uh, that's, not, that's not a very good motivation for stepping into it. He, uh, in, 16, in July 1689, he became, the four, he became the fourth of four successive men who had attempted to take the pulpit of the, of the church in Salem Village, Massachusetts. Uh, 
The other three, he was the first one they actually managed to ordain. The other three would serve for a year or two. They'd, uh, they'd dis dispute with quarrelsome residents of Salem, Salem Village, a nearby Salem town. And, uh, and Paris was the one who finally made it stick. He finally got ordained by the congregation there. Finally got ordained and called by the congregation there. Unfortunately, that was not the end. That was only the beginning of his troubles. Um, Salem Village and nearby Salem Town uh, are, today, are located in what is today known as Danvers, Massachusetts. And they were known as a difficult place to live. Um, contentions between neighbors were, uh, were rampant. Uh, land disputes and personal squabbles were constant. There was a lot of resentment and an annoyance and reluctance to pay the pastor, uh, which was particularly provoking to Samuel Paris, who was looking to make some money in this endeavor. There's also, um, now we'll go back, we'll return that in a minute. In 1692, uh, in 1692, Pastor Paris, Samuel Paris's uh, youngest daughter, Elizabeth, known as Betty, known as Betty Paris, she was nine years old at the time, and she, and she was, and her cousin, Ab, her, her cousin Abigail Williams was living with the Paris family at the time. And as best historians have been able to tell, they were dabbling in some fortune telling, in, you know, in their parents' basement, out in the woods, around the neighbors' homes. Um, there's been more sordid versions of how this began told. Uh, most of them, most of them, popularized by Arthur Miller's play *The Crucible*, um, which came out, which was written in the 1950s. We'll have to talk about that again here in a minute. But it really seems like there's nothing, there was nothing more than a little harmless fortune telling and divination going on, or at least that's how we would view it today. Uh, the girls were interested in what kind of social standing they would have when they got older. They were interested in who they would marry, and they would uh, they were using various local uh, various local um, superstitious practices to try to determine that. And they began to they began to experience strange symptoms, or at least what are described as strange symptoms. They began to feel they began to have, feel stiffness in their limbs. They began to contort their bodies in strange ways and to crawl into under furniture and to speak and babble in strange ways. Um, at least that is, what, that is what later events would, would having cast a shadow, would put upon these. Um, I can't help but reading uh, many of the firsthand accounts of Salem Village at the time, just be reminded of my children on a bad day, quite honestly. And I think that's a theme you should keep in mind as we read a lot of this. Um, Paris was concerned for his daughter and for his niece, uh, and so he called in a doctor who could find no, no physical, nothing physically wrong with them, and happened to mention that they seemed to be bewitched. Um, they were, they were um, a member of Paris's church uh, consulted. Cons a member of Paris's church spoke with Tichuba, the Paris's uh, family slave, and her husband encouraged her to make a witch cake. Which was a which is where you would take uh, you would take uh, cornmeal or flour and you would mix it with you would mix it with the urine of those who were those who were thought to be bewitched and then you'd feed it to a dog who were dogs were associated with witches at the time and that was supposed to in some way indicate uh, who who was afflicting who was afflicting the girls and so they accused three women they accused Tichba herself ironically. They accused, uh, and then they accused two older, infirm women in the community. Uh, these were women without, without near relations to the community. They had no advocates. They were viewed as kind of social pariahs and outsiders. Tichaba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne were, uh, were accused by these young girls. Remember, we're talking about 12 years, 11 to 12 years and younger uh, in this group. Now, 
Accusations of witchcraft was not unusual in New England at the time. It was not unusual throughout, uh, throughout America and Europe at the time. What was, um, way it was usually handled is the way it should be handled, honestly. It was handled uh, under pastoral care of the church. If someone was accused, if someone uh, felt afflicted or someone was, uh, was concerned about being demon-possessed, then, then he or she would come before the elders of the church. It would usually be handled privately and discreetly and uh, move on. That is not what happened in contentious Salem Village. Um, the number of afflicted grew to be, grew to, I forgot to count this, one, two, three, four, five, six, grew to seven, uh, grew to seven young ladies in the community, including, uh, including Betty Paris, Abigail Williams, Mary Warren, Elizabeth Booth, Elizabeth Hubbard, Mercy Lewis, and Ann Putnam. And these young, these young women would, be, would take a center stage in what would happen for the next nine to 16 months, depending on how you date it, from, from, uh, from basically March of, 1890, of 1692 to, uh, to May of 1693, in events that would have come to be known today as the Salem Witch Trials. And that, and it's that, that word trials is significant, um, because what was unusual about what happened in Salem is they immediately rushed to the courts to try to, uh, deter, to, try to determine the truth, or, the truth or falsehood of these accusations. The um, Massachusetts was, so this was colonial America. Uh, Massachusetts was still under the crown of Great Britain, and they had just received a brand new royal charter uh, for, for the Massachusetts colony and a, brand new, and a brand new governor. And he walked, and I cannot imagine him walking into his desk for the first time and seeing this report out of Salem on his desk. He established uh, what is known, uh, he established a special court uh, known by the very odd name of the Court of Oyer and Terminer in Salem Town, nearby, uh, so adjoining the village. Oyer, court of Oyer and Terminer. Uh, that's Latin meaning special circumstances, basically. And this was, uh, and this, this court uh, began hearing cases in, um, in May of, eight, of 1692. And the accusations began pouring in. I'm going to read to you from some firsthand accounts. One of the things to remember is we know uh, uh, one of the things that you cannot, you know, one of the things we have to grapple with when we talk about Salem witch trials is this is what most people think of when they hear the word Puritan today, is the way the, Puritan handled, the Puritans handled these trials. There's a lot we're going to say about that, but the first thing to remember is the only reason we know about the Salem witch trials is because the Puritans wrote about the Puritan witch trials. They wrote a lot. This was not something that was swept under the rug. This was something done out in the full light of day, uh, often, often horribly so. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm, reading, I'm gonna be reading from um, two main sources today. The first one is called the, the, the first one is by Cotton Mather, who we've talked about before, and it's a book called The Wonders of the Invisible World, which is a very sensational title, particularly for a Puritan. Um, and then there was, and then I'll, I'll read from another uh, in a minute, but let me, let me start with a little bit of Cotton Mather here. When the trials began in May of 1692, they, the first woman who was actually found guilty of witchcraft, with name was, uh, her name was Bridget. Had her name here. name is Bridget Bishop. She was the first woman actually convicted and executed 
for, uh, for what was considered witchcraft at the time. And after that happened, there was kind of a time at which the, the judges and the ministers in Salem Town and Salem Village pulled back and said, hang on, let's get some counsel here. Many historians feel like this could have been in the moment when Bridget Bishop could have been the first and the last of the people who died during the Salem Witch Trials. So they pulled back and they consulted with, uh, they consulted with, minister, with prominent ministers in Boston, Cotton Mather being one of them. And it's interesting to read um, because they give some very good advice, which was not followed. Not the first time. Mather, uh, Mather wrote at the time, uh, he shared, a, he shared, a, he shared a, a large number of principles that should be kept in mind uh, when, when looking into cases of demon possession. And that's, and that's important to remember when we, talk about witch, when we talk about witchcraft, we're really talking about demonic activity. That's what the ministers of Salem Village and Salem Town were concerned about. They were concerned about the devil working through people and using those people to hurt and afflict others. And uh, in cases like this, evidence is very, very, when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with things outside the norm, you know, normal circumstances of legal procedure, evidence is very, very, it's very, very important how you, how you weigh evidence, what kind of evidence you admit, and how you, you, know, how you actually go about um, getting convictions. So Mather and the other ministers, um, they, shared some, uh, they shared some principles that should be kept in mind. I'm going to read a few. So one of them was, some add this for a presumption, a presumption of guilt. If the party suspected be found to have the devil's mark, for it is commonly thought when the devil makes his covenant with them, he always leaves his mark behind him, whereby he knows them for his own. A mark whereof no evident reason in nature can be given. Among the sufficient means of conviction, the first is, so he goes, uh, he says, if after cursing there follow death, or at least some mischief, for witches are wont to practice their mischievous facts by cursing and banning, this also is a sufficient matter of examination, though not of conviction. If a fellow witch or magician give testimony of any person to be a witch, this indeed is not sufficient for condemnation, but it is fit it is a fit presumption to cause a straight examination. So he goes through many things that should give you pause and should make you want to ask questions, but are not enough to condemn someone. But then he goes on to say, among the sufficient means of conviction, the first is the free and voluntary confession of the crime made by the party suspected and accused after examination. I say not that a bare confession is sufficient, but a confession after due examination, taken upon pregnant presumptions, what needs now more witness or further inquiry? So if upon examination a man or woman were, con were to confess to witchcraft, that would, be, that would be sufficient for conviction in his mind. There is a second sufficient conviction by the testimony of two witnesses of good and honest report, avouching before the magistrate upon their own knowledge these two things, either that the party accused hath made a league with the devil, or had done some known practice of witchcraft. And all arguments that do necessarily prove either of these, being brought by two sufficient witnesses, are a force fully to convince the party suspected. Reading these, is very, it's, it's very, you have to sort through a lot when you read through these instructions. On the one hand, there's these, strange, there's these strange things that are very foreign to us, looking for marks on the body that don't seem to have an explanation. I mean, why? there's so many explanations that could be possible for that. Why would we give such weight to that? On the other hand, you know, there was a huge weight put on confession 
Um, so much so that when Tichibo was originally accused of witchcraft, um, other, other primary sources state that, her, that Paris actually, um, actually beat her until she confessed to being a witch and then gave her direction about how, the, how she, should, uh, she should accuse others of being witches at the time. And so Mather and the other ministers in Boston, they urged them to be very, very careful, very, very careful about how they take accusations from others. That may be, that may be grounds uh, for examination, but you should not condemn simply because somebody, you should not condemn a man or woman for being a witch simply because someone else says they are. Now, uh, where I have to give um, Pastor Mather a little grief is in, outpour- is in the way he described the trials. He, in his book, The Wonders of the Invisible World, this was one of the only books at the, t- at the immediate time that was allowed to be written. The governor got so freaked out by this whole thing, he forbade any writing about the subject whatsoever. And this was one of the few that he approved. So Mather's, um, Mather's priority in, in a lot of the cases he lays out seems to be a defense of the, government's, of the state government's handling of these cases. He lays out a lot of good advice, a few examples of which we just read, but in the cases he seems to follow, but in the cases he lays out, he seems to follow none of it. Let me give you an example. Let me read one of his descriptions of a case. This is from the trial of Bridget Bishop. So she was the first woman tried and, con- and condemned. She was indicted for bewitching of several persons in the neighborhood, the indictment being drawn up according to the form in such cases as usual. And pleading not guilty, there were brought in several persons who had long undergone many kinds of miseries, which were preternaturally inflicted, and generally ascribed unto an horrible witchcraft. There was little occasion to prove the witchcraft, it being evident and notorious to, be- to all beholders. Hmm. Now, to fix the witchcraft on the prisoner at the bar, the first thing used was the testimony of the bewitched, whereof several testified that the shape of the prisoner did oftentimes very grievously pinch them, choke them, bite them, and afflict them, urging them to write their names in a book, which the said specter called ours. Um, so you have, we're writing in, well, it's not old English, but it's definitely older than our English. So what, this, would, this would be a pattern that would be followed by the testimony of many, many of the afflicted, as they were called. They would say that, the, that whoever they accused appeared in a vision to them and then proceeded to urge them to make a covenant with the devil. That was the reference to the book that's said here. And if they did not immediately sign, then, they, then they, this apparition uh, would then inflict bodily harm on them. Many of which the afflicted said, you know, many of the afflicted could show actual symptoms on their body of bite marks, or they would be, they would spit up nails out of their mouth. They would, uh, they would scream. They would fall over. They would wake up in night terrors. All kinds of things, and it was, and it was always done in the image of some other person that they were accusing. It was testified that at the examination of the prisoner before the magistrates, the bewitched, the afflicted, were extremely tortured. If she, if, that is, if Bridget Bishop did but cast her eyes on them, on the afflicted, they were presently struck down, and this in such a manner as there could be no collusion in the business. But upon the touch of her hand, upon them, when they lay in their swoons, they would immediately revive, and not upon the touch of anyone else. Moreover, upon some special actions of her body, as the shaking of her head or the turning of her eyes, they presently and painfully fell into the like postures. And many of the like accidents now fell out, while she was at the bar, one at the same time testifying that she said she could not be troubled to see the afflicted thus tormented. There was testimony likewise brought in that a man striking once at the place 
where the bewitched person said, the shape of the bishop stood, the bewitched cried out that he had tore her coat. In the place then particularly specified, and the woman's coat was found to be torn in that very place. This goes on and on and on. And what each, what each witness who brought forward would said is they had seen the appearance of Bridget Bishop come before them and had either, she'd either urged them to join with the devil, she'd, she had afflicted them if they hadn't, she had, said some, she had said something to them about someone or something going to die and they had lost children, or they had lost a horse or a pig or something else that happened. It was all being attributed to this person. In other words, it was all, it was all circumstantial evidence and it was all, uh, and it was all from people. It was, none, of it, none of it was anything that could actually be proven. It was, simply this, it was simply based upon visions and surmises, and, it came to be, and this became such a common form of evidence admitted into these trials, it became known as spectral evidence. Now, if that doesn't sound fishy, it should. And so a lot of these cases read very, very similar. And um, there was another case of, of George Burroughs, was, was another one of the 120 to 150 men and women who were accused of witchcraft in, in and around Salem Village at this time. And he was, uh, he was condemned and he was executed, but not, he was hung, he was hung uh, for being a witch, but not until after he had actually recited the Lord's Prayer perfectly from beginning to end, which is something that superstition at the time felt that a witch could not do. And so, there were, so immediately the crowd, started, the crowd started reconsidering the verdict that had been brought in. There was, a move to, uh, there was a move to end the trial. Mather was actually present for this because Burroughs had been one of the previous pastors at the church in, in Salem Village. And after he was hung, Mather had to quiet the crowd and assure them, no, this man was not ordained. He was just convicted in a court of law. He was clearly a witch. Uh, um, and so that the executions could continue. Uh, this is not one of Mather's finest moments. He was being a shill and a propagandist for the state government more than anything else. Private correspondence from the time indicates that he was much more cautious and uh, concerned about the proceedings. But he was kind of being, he was kind of, but in the midst of it, he spent a lot of time trying to justify this. Let me read, let me read back and uh, let me read it from another, another contemporary source of the time. This is from, this, is called, this book is called More Wonders of the Invisible World. And this is, uh, this was, and so kind of a sequel to Mather's book, if you will, but this was written by Robert Califf. He was a cloth merchant in Boston. And he writes about, he writes about the Paris household at the outbreak of uh, the hysteria. He says, Mr. Paris had been some years a minister in Salem Village when this sad calamity, as a deluge overflowed them, spreading itself far and near. He was a gentleman of liberal education, and not meeting with any great encouragement or advantage in merchandising, to which for some time he implied himself, betook himself to the work of the ministry. This village then being, vac being then vacant, he met with so much encouragement as to settle in that capacity among them. After he had been there about two years, he obtained a grant from, the part, from a part of the town that the house and land he occupied, and which had been allotted by the whole people to the ministry, should be, should be and remain to him, etc., as his own estate and fee, fee simple. In other words, there was dispute over what he was going to be paid. This occasioned great divisions both among the inhabitants themselves and between a considerable part of them and their sad minister, which divisions were but as a beginning or prelude to what immediately followed. It was the latter end of February, 1691, when diverse young persons belonging to Mr. Paris's family and one or more of the neighborhood began to act after a strange and unusual manner, 
as by getting into holes and creeping under chairs and stools, and to use sundry odd postures and antic gestures, uttering foolish, ridiculous speeches which neither they themselves nor any others could make sense of. The physicians that were called could assign no reason for this, but it seems one of them, having recourse to the old shift, told them uh, he was afraid they were bewitched. Upon such suggestions, they that were concerned applied themselves to fasting and prayer, which was attended not only in their own private families, but with calling and the help of others. On March 11th, Mr. Paris invited several neighboring ministers to join with him in keeping a solemn day of prayer at his own house. At the time of the exercise, those persons were for the most part silent, but after any one prayer was ended, they would act and speak strangely and ridiculously, yet were such as had been well-educated and of good behavior. The one, a girl of 11 or 12 years old, would sometimes seem to be a convulsive fit, her limbs being twisted several ways and very stiff, but presently her fit would be over. A few days before the solemn day of prayer, Mr. Paris's Indian man and woman made a cake of rye meal and the children's water and baked it in the ashes and, as is said, gave it to the dog. This was done as a means to discover witchcraft. Soon after which, those ill-afflicted, those ill-affected or afflicted persons named several that they said they saw when in their fits afflicting them. The first complained of was a said Indian woman named Tichuba. She confessed that the devil urged her to sign a book, which he presented to her, and also to work mischief to the children. She was afterwards committed to prison and lay there till sold for her fees. The account she since gives of it is that her master did beat her and otherwise abuse her to make her confess and accuse, such as he called her sister witches, and that whatsoever she said by way of confessing or accusing others was the effect of such usage. Her master refused to pay her fees unless she would stand to what she had said. After this, uh, after this period, Tichiba would be, uh, would be locked up in prison um, waiting trial. She would never actually be convicted. Um, she, she basically, um, she and her husband, John, uh, basically turned themselves into expert witnesses on witchcraft. And so the accusation, so the ac she was the first to actually confess to being a witch and in so doing uh, accused others and would continue to do so along with the other young women who were afflicted. And she lived at, she survived the Salem witch trials and was ultimately sold, uh, sold, to, sold to someone in Boston after they were over, at which point we don't know much more about her life. Once again, she's, she's given a much more vivid and sordid role in this whole story in Arthur Miller in The Crucible, which Arthur Miller wrote in the 1950s. There's insinuations that she was leading the young girls in voodoo practices from the Caribbean and, and all kinds of dark things, and I, think, and I think that's honestly just a bit overblown for storytelling. I think, it's far, I think what is far more ominous is that what the girls were doing was local superstition to Massachusetts, and that it's, and that it's even the... Even even the, the forms of divination that we consider trite and rather ridiculous today seem to have been the inroads for demonic activity into this community. So the thing to remember is we have a very small pool of accusers. We have a, very, we have a large and very growing collection of accused in Salem and in the neighboring communities at this point. Um, the girls that I, the, the seven girls that I mentioned, they were, they each, they each accused, uh, they had overlapping accusations, they had separate ones, they each accused around 50 to 60 people apiece at various times. And a pattern began to emerge that began to concern, well, it, it was not like this was universal, it was not like the trials were universally supported in Salem then, uh, even at the time. There was a lot of criticism for these. For one thing, they noticed that a lot of the people accused had been rivals and opponents of both the Paris 
and their friends, the Putnam's family. There were a lot of, uh, a lot of the disputes that had been going on before seemed to very conveniently uh, happen, you know, seemed to very, this seemed to be a convenient way to get back at some of those folks. Um, there was also growing concern that the spectral evidence that what if, you know, what if the devil, all right, let's grant the devil is active. What if he's taking the form of innocent men and women and using this, and using this to tear down good people? Um, historians have, you know, have determined today that at least half of the 20 people, 20 men and women who were executed during the Salem witch trials were prominent Christians in Salem. Um, from what, what I've read, for what it's worth, I don't think any of the 20 were actually guilty of witchcraft. Whether they were all Christians, I don't know. But there's no indications. Um, and you know, the reasons for that is we have examples of demon possession. We have, we have examples of this kind of affliction in Scripture. Is any of what we're reading lining up in your mind with what we see? This whole thing, um, this whole thing of this person not, it, when someone's demon-possessed, when a person is personally demon-possessed or, or is a witch, as, we, as the term was being used here in Salem, it's very, very evident in Scripture. This person is living among the tombs, they're running around naked, they're afflicting themselves. Um, if they're hurting other people, it's they themselves, you know, lashing out. There's not, this shadowy, there's not this shadowy jurisprudence that has to go on to actually prove that this person is a witch and everybody bringing all these things together. So the circumstances seem very, very, uh, seem very, very dubious. In May 1692, so this is, a, this is about six months after, uh, after the trials have started, the governor, the royal governor, Sir William Phipps, who had established excuse me, no, in October 1692, so a few months after establishing the court of Oyer and Terminer back in May, the governor, uh, the governor suspended the court and established a new special judiciary to be handling these cases, and he banned the use of spectral evidence as admissible in court. It means, you could, it means if you're gonna accuse someone of a witch, being a witch, you had to bring something more concrete than just saying you had a dream or a vision of them being that. And very interestingly, the accusations fell off uh, dramatically and the execution stopped immediately. The, uh, of the 20 people, uh, the, the convictions just weren't possible anymore. There were still people accused, there were still people in prison for a time, um, but, the, you know, but the actual executions that happened uh, occurred mainly, between, mainly in the period where the spectral evidence was being admitted into court. And that la so all in all, the, the trials lasted from March of 1692 to May 1693. 120 to 150 people were accused. There were 20 put to death, 19 were hung, and the 20th, Giles Corey, was pressed to death. Uh, this is thankfully, this has thankfully been a rare punishment in the United States, um, but Corey was 70 years old. He was, by all accounts, a, um, a peppery man. He was, uh, he was a prosperous farmer, and if he had been accused and condemned as a witch, then, his, then the state would have seized his land and property. He, so he was having none of that. So he refused to plead in court. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't plead guilty or not guilty. So as a result, the court uh, condemned him to be pressed, which meant he was laid on his back and a board was placed on his chest, and then they put a rock on it, and they asked him to plead, and he refused. And they put another rock on it and asked him to plead, and he refused. And this just kept going on while more and more rocks were put on his chest until he suffocated under it. His last words were said to be, uh, his last words were said to be a curse upon the sheriff laying the rocks on and, and daring him to add more weight. And then he died. 
One of, the, uh, one of the elements of this story that has not been dealt with enough was the influence of the halfway covenant in Salem. The halfway covenant was a, uh, was a, very, was a very prominent and, important and influential theological debate in the churches of New England, or indeed throughout the colonies at this time. Um, it, was actually, it was actually a forebearer of some of, the, of some of the debates over revival and revivalism that would come in the Great Awakenings that were soon to follow. Um, it was, you would have, you would have fan, these were good Presbyterians and Congregationalists, so that means they were baptizing babies, um, almost universally, and so you would have Christian parents, they'd bring their children to be baptized, quite right and proper, and then it would come time for these kids to come to the Lord's table, and the elders would examine them, and they'd just be like, what, what do you mean you've grown up in a Christian home? You know, what do you mean you love Jesus? That's, that's not enough. We need to hear some, we need to hear a story. We need to hear something sensational. We need to hear a, a conversion experience is what, we, is what we may call it today. They were looking for something, they were looking for something more in these testimonies. So what you had was a lot of kids who were part of the church, but not really. And so it came to be known as the halfway covenant. And it was built upon this emotional, it was built upon a growing sense of emotionalism and need to emotionally validate a conversion experience. And so I do, so I don't have, a, there's, um, there's indicate, I've read at least one reference that the halfway covenant was being practiced uh, by the time Samuel Paris came to the church in Salem. Um, whether that, whether that emotional, or the emotionalism driven by that con committed, uh, Contribute in any way to the hysteria around the trials, I don't know, but I think it's, a, it's something we should consider more. I think one of the most grievous of the executions was a woman named Rebecca Nurse. She was accused by, she was accused by Abigail Williams, by Mr. Paris's, um, uh, by Mr. Paris's niece, as well as other young women. She was 70 years old. She, her trial began on June 30th, and this was a turning point in the trials because up to this point, the afflicted had mainly accused outsiders and lone, you know, lonely, women, uh, lonely women and men throughout the community. Uh, Rebe uh, Rebecca was very different. She was 70 years old. She'd been a leading woman in the community for a long time. She held regular prayer meetings. She was grieved by, the, she was grieved by the, um, all the dispute and all the dispute and the quarreling within Salem. So she would regularly gather the women of the community into her home and encourage them to pray. She wanted them to be in fellowship with each other. She wanted them to be praying for themselves and for the communities that the Lord would bring peace and reconciliation again. This is the last woman you would ever accuse of a witch. So when she finally was, and the whole dog and pony show in the trial started down, it started to raise a lot of questions in people's minds. As a matter of fact, there's indications that she, that she had actually rebuked Abigail Williams and Ann Putnam and, and, Betty, and Betty Paris uh, for, their for their what she saw as their wicked, and their wicked gossip and slander. And that may have put her on, they may have put her on the, the bad side of these girls at the time. Um, she was, uh, she and her husband both, uh, she and her husband both were convicted and she was one of the 20 uh, that was hung. These are sobering events, and they have been used to uh, they have been used to slander the church, slander uh, the church uh, for a long time since. A big part of that was because of Arthur Miller's play that he wrote in the 1950s. Arthur Miller's play is uh, the Crucible is often assigned in high school re high school classes. Uh, it's considered a classic of American American theater these days. 
Um, it, is, it is a very clever piece of storytelling. In it, his concern was not primarily the Salem Witch Trials, but was he used the Salem Witch Trials as an allegory for, the, for McCarthyism and for the trials and for the, the hunt for communists. So the whole, idea of, the whole idea of a witch hunt, as we conceive of it, was a creation of Miller for this play when he took this historical event from colonial America and applied it to contemporary, his, contemporary America of his day. He even studied the King James Bible and other writings like I've read today to try to, get the, try to, get the, try to capture this, the patterns of speech. He really wanted, he made a very, he, um, he changed a lot of ages, he added a lot of sordid, uh, sordid stories between the characters that we've, whose names we've mentioned, and created a very compelling work of fiction. But it was a work of fiction that we now, can, that we now conflate with the truth today. And so a lot, of what, a lot of what Americans think comes from that play, where the reality was much more, much more complicated. What ultimately happened is, in America, we were seeing a pattern in, in, uh, in, the, in, 16, in the 1600s in New England, we were seeing a falling away uh, from, the original ideal, from the original ideals that had founded the colony. The, uh, the desire to be a city on a hill, a place set aside for God's work had fallen aside. And for this brief period, the rule of law was suspended and, and panic and hysteria reigned in its stead. I read from, De and this was something that Mather pointed out very accurately. He quoted from, uh, he quoted from Deuteronomy. Uh, one of the, I think one of the more important ones was uh, from Deuteronomy 13, a reminder that others would have done well to remember. Deuteronomy 13 says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, whom you shall not know, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listening to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from among you. And I think this is what is important to remember. Witchcraft never exists in a vacuum. There was a, there was a preoccupation upon the symptoms, upon the afflictions, upon the physical manifestations, because those were exciting. But ultimately, what makes witchcraft witchcraft is when, it's when unusual power is put forth to draw people away from God. And so where, who was, but where do we actually see that? We don't see that in the physical manifestations on the afflicted. We see that in what the afflicted were doing, uh, were doing in, in, in accusing their, brother, their brothers and sisters in Salem. I'm reminded of what it says in, uh, in Revelation. Had it just a second. It says in uh, Revelation, chapter 7, Revelation chapter 12, And there was war in heaven. 
Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And that is, that is who our enemy, the devil, is. He is an accuser. He can take on the form of an angel of light, but it always is always for the purpose of false accusations. And I think that's where, and I think we, we can err in two ways when we consider the Salem witch trials. On the one hand, we can dismiss this as the deluded hysteria of a bunch of supernaturalists. And we can, we can simply say, well, there is no such thing as devils. So obviously they, were, obviously they were deluded or demented or they were eating fungus in their food or some other thing uh, that, caused, that caused them to make, make up these things. That's, one error, that's the error the rest of the world can take. But we can, and we can just try to dismiss the demonic activity entirely. Otherwise, or we can get caught up in hysteria and put it, apply it in the wrong place. I think, when we should, I think what we should look for it, when we look for the, the devil's work is in the innocent who were falsely accused and the accusers who did it. Of the seven girls who were, who were prominent witnesses in all these trials, none of, them, uh, they, none of them, to our knowledge, ever repented of their activities, with one exception. Anne Putnam, uh, later in life, uh, was grieved, particularly by her accusation of, uh, of Rebecca Nurse. And she wrote a long confession in the Church of Salem afterwards. And she said, I desire to be humbled before God for that sad and humbling providence that befell my, fa my father's family in the year about 92, that I then, being in my childhood, should, by such a providence of God, be made an instrument for the accusing of several people for grievous crimes, whereby their lives were taken away from them, whom now I have just grounds and good reason to believe they were innocent persons, and that it was a great delusion of Satan that deceived me in that sad time whereby I justly fear I have been instrumental with others, though ignorantly and unwittingly, to bring upon myself in this land the guilt of innocent blood. Though what was said or done by me against any person, I can truly and uprightly say, before God and man, I did not out of any anger, malice, or ill will to any person, for I had no such thing against one of them. But what I did was ignorantly being deluded by Satan. And particularly, as I was the chief instrument of accusing Rebecca Nurse and her two sisters, I desired to lie in the dust and to be humble for it. In that I was a cause with others of so sad a calamity to them and their families, for which cause I desired to lie in the dust and earnestly beg forgiveness of God and from all those unto whom I have given just cause of sorrow and offense, whose relations were taken away or accused. After making this confession, she made this confession publicly before the church in Salem Village. Uh, Samuel Paris had left at that, by that, that point, and um, the family of the nurse family. Um, had been had been suing had been suing for a change uh, had been suing for a reversal of the decision in their their mother and grandmother's case and they were actually reconciled to Anne and to the Putnam family after this confession and there was there was a lot of reconciliation forgiveness that happened the governor Sir William Phipps he finally ended the trials in October and exonerated any of those who remained in prison after the accusations. Um, and like I said, by that point, the, uh, the trials had kind of been winding down anyway. I know we're right at 10.15. I know this is a lot of material. I appreciate you all sitting patiently. Are there any questions or comments with this? I know this is a very dense topic.
not that we know of. Other people did. Other people who were involved in it did repent. Uh, one of the judges, le- one of the judges early on, left and washed his hands of the whole trial. Um, there were others who, uh, other less prominent accusers who who repented of their their conduct as well. Uh, Samuel Paris himself, he wrote. He continued in. Uh, he got. He was not popular in the church before. He was even less popular for his. What, what, he was a. He was a prominent leader in the trials, and that left him pretty unpopular afterwards as well. He wrote meditate. He wrote a piece called the Meditations on Peace, on which he hoped he try, He he confessed to some poor judgments on his part. It wasn't enough to satisfy anyone. Um, but yeah, there were. But there were also sincere, sincere um, confessions as well. Well, and that's why I read from Deuteronomy at the outset. Yeah, that's, there's a huge, it's not just, we always think the requirement of two or three witnesses, which is important, but you also, also, you also have to weigh the hearts of those witnesses and what are their intentions as well, which is why it's so ominous, not, not, just, that, um, not just that this was happening, but that there seemed to be social and political and personal reasons for the accusations as well. And that's something that the judges should have been weighing when they noticed the trend. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, this was Salem. Salem is today labeled as a you know as a narrow-minded theocratic uh, example of Puritan of the most consistent form of Puritanism, and like I said, that's what people think of it. Uh, I think when you study it, you see this is not a full embracing of God's law, but actually a rejection of God's law. Um, the The Lord lays down very very clear direction about how we're to determine guilt, and they were making up rules as they went along. So this is not an example. This is um, this is not an example of how godly or just jurisprudence should be practiced. And as uh, and I think they missed. And I think the I think the I think the I think the biggest thing they missed was where was family discipline at this time? Where were the fathers and mothers of these girls who were being put in in front of courts when they should have been talked to at home? Uh, we see a huge failure. We hear of Samuel Paris's thundering sermons on devils among us from the pulpit of his of his of his church. We see him uh, providing testimony. We see uh, and you know, serving as a court court stenographer. In um, we do not see him in his family. We do not see him out after summoning after beating his slave and summoning the doctor. We just see him doing nothing with his family even more. Even if his girls were afflicted, where is the love of the fa- where is this love of the father for his children? And that was one of the big criticisms afterwards is where is his compassion for those who've been accused as well? So I think it's a I think this is the uh, I think this is an absence of Purit- of the best of Puritanism rather than its best. Andrew, did you have your hand up again? Mm-hmm. Right. That, that is a part of God's 
Mm. I was wondering about that. Yeah, that's a great point, and that's something I was grappling with through this. I feel like the terminology of witches was misapplied and unhelpful, both, both in the day of and since. Because I think demon possession was happening in Salem. I think witchcraft occurs today. I don't know whether it was happening then, but like you said, that's, you know, a demon-possessed person someone who doesn't want it and has it, which I think we see, I think we see with someone like Ann Putnam, who's great, who was thankfully saved. I mean, I'd love to know what was actually done for this young lady. Um, but today, uh, in, in my research, I don't recommend doing this, but I actually listened to an interview with a witch who lives in Salem today, um, and she she rejects, she rejects, she not only rejects God, she rejects the devil as well. And she very, quite accurately indicated that that is a Christian, that is a Christian teaching, not, not, a, uh, not a teaching of witches, which shows how deluded she is and how much the devil's having sport with her soul. The, 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 mantra, of, uh, the mantra of witchcraft today is do what you want and hurt no one. And they replace the Ten Commandments with those two. And that's, and that's scary because that could be the mantra of many in our culture, not just, not just those who are consistent enough to recognize it as the basic tenet of witchcraft. Any other questions? Yeah, Bob. oh, Nelson. Sorry, Bob, she got her hand up first. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds, it's, it's, is it right to attribute that to God's will? No, I know. I think, I think that was very mature, I think it was a very mature theology on her part. It is hard for us to, to look at this situation and think, how could God have permitted this? But the alternative is far worse, to conclude that God had no control over this, and it was just an outbreak against, against his will. We have to conclude that he did. And I think we, I think it's good to, I think again, we go back to scripture and we look at when does demonic activity at its highest, it's when the gospel, it's when the gospel is making, it's when the gospel is advancing, that these de the desperate, the desperate, I think, I think, Andrew, I'm going off script here, so you can pull me back in if I need to, but I think demon possession and the, and the, the elaborate, spectacular cases we see here are desperation. It's when the gospel's in the ascendancy that the devils have to come to this. I think in the world we live in, the devils don't need to possess anyone like this. They possess the halls of power. They possess the, the quarters of academia. Um, you know, Satan is worshiped and served pretty much everywhere. And so we're the, we're the weirdos and the outsiders. I think it was flipped in Massachusetts at this time. And so there was, there was a time that the Lord allowed Satan to sift the hearts and minds of his people in Massachusetts in times like this. And so that we have to conclude that was his providence. Andrew, would you add anything to that? Okay. <laughs>
Renton, you're smiling. You got any thoughts? All right, anything else? On that, I'm sorry, I tried to write a happy ending for this. Uh, Ann Putnam's confession is the closest I could get. Oh, Bob, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a big, that's a broad question, brother, but it's a good one because that's, again, that's another thing that's, that's another thing that's, that's another charge that's leveled at, you know, the Puritans at this time was that they conflated church and state in ways that are inappropriate. And I think to an extent they did, but that doesn't mean we, devo but, you know, like we were pointing out, there were, there are civil sanctions for witchcraft as well as, so, which I think it was right for the state to have an interest. Yeah. I just think it was an overweening interest and they jumped in too fast well, in something that should have been. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where a lot of the debate that's where a lot of the debate swirled around. It was like, well, could the devil could the devil take the form of an, of an innocent person and you and use them to actually afflict another person, which I, I think they just kind of missed the whole debate once they get into that. They did, and they were using them they were studying them well, they just weren't using them. All right, I'm going to have to cut this off. We'll talk about this in the back because this is good, good conversation. Let's pray and let's go to worship. Lord, let us never trivialize and uh, let us never scorn our enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion. Lord, his, uh, his, his methods and his weapons are devious and subtle and far beyond our ability to defend. So we cast ourselves upon our, our Lord and Savior we, we, we rejoice in the protection of his blood this morning. Pray you uh, bless us and prepare us to praise his name today. In, G in his name, amen.